Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we have some really good deals for RPG products that are beginning in November. I'm sure this is going to extend throughout November, but we're going to take a look at some specific ones. Roll20 now allows you to build a 5e D&D character outside of the virtual tabletop. We're going to talk about what that means for the industry and why this is an example of one of Mike's little candles that is a light that the, the industry has gotten better. But that also leads me to a conversation about what a 5e digital utopia looks like. What When it comes to the materials that we want to be able to purchase and hold and use, what would it be like? What would an ideal version of that be like given the amount of attention that's being applied to digital tools. So we're going to dig into that. I also want to talk about monuments of power. These are artifacts. These are monuments you can drop into your games into big battles that change up how battles work. We're going to talk about how to construct monuments like that, some tricks and tips and tricks for making sure that they're both fun and useful and really make your battles interesting. And we're going to cover the first batch of questions from the November 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a dedicated Discord server, a monthly Q&A, The City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, and a bunch of tools to help you run your role-playing games. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So we are in the beginning of the big sales cycle where all of the retailers out there are trying to do everything they can to bring customers to their products. And we're beginning to see some really, really good deals going on in the world of RPGs. Right off the bat, Amazon is doing a three for two deal for certain D&D Wizards of the Coast published with D&D books. They're already discounted, but you can actually pick up books for much less than their MSRP. And if you pick up two of them, you get a third book for free, which means you can essentially get three books for like 40 to 50 bucks. And I have a few books that I want to recommend specifically that were on this list. And one of them is Radiant Citadel. Radiant Citadel is an excellent book of adventures that cover a whole wide range of different worlds. Each of them has a small compendium about that particular world. And when we were talking about the value of source books in a previous show, Somebody brought up, you know, Radiant Citadel has a lot of value in that. And they do. Not only do you get like an adventure that's specific to that world, they're not all necessarily interconnected, but you can connect them together. It gives you the location of the Radiant Citadel is, it itself, but it also gives you gazetteers on each of the worlds that these adventures are in. And it's a really, really good product, a really outstanding book, and one that I highly recommend. And it is part of this three for two deal. You can get it for 28 bucks, but if you buy one other book, you get a third book for free. I mentioned my love of Eberron Rising from the Last War, which I I think is the best I'm going to I'm going to make this statement and then years from now you can come back and say Mike see, you said this and it turned out it wasn't true I think it is the best source book we're going to ever see from Wizards of the Coast I think it is the best value we're going to see in a source book from Wizards of the Coast. And you can get that on sale as well. I recommend you do because, again, I think it is going to be the best deal that you're going to be able to get for a Wizards of the Coast source book. It is excellent. I couldn't decide whether you should get Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica or the Mythic Odyssey of Theros. I, I like the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica better, but I like that style of adventure. I thought the guilds were really cool. The idea of a world-sized city was really neat to me. I thought the way that they managed 
managed to kind of shake up all of the different alignments of these different guilds to follow those sort of two color magic system that they have. I thought that was really unique. I think it is an excellent, excellent source book. But many people I know really love Mythic Odyssey of Theros. They like the sort of the gods being more directly involved in the story. They love the sort of focus on sort of Greek mythology. They like that too. So if you think you would rather enjoy the sort of Greek mythology focus of Mythic Odyssey of Theros over the sort of more higher tech magic world of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, then you can sort of pick. It's I could say that because Eberron is also sort of a high magic world, that maybe if you were getting Eberron and Ra- and and Ravnica, maybe those are there's a little bit of overlap between the two. You could probably mix the two of them quite a bit, but I don't know if you need to because there's so much material in either book. So maybe Theros would be a good one as an example of sort of a classic setting, you know, a true classic setting for a a D and D campaign. But anyway, those would be three books, three slash four books that I would recommend that you can get as part of this three for two deal that's going on on Amazon that is unfortunately only in the United States and I, I don't think you have to be a prime subscriber but it is unfortunately that that deal is not going on overseas it's not going on outside of the United States unfortunately but if you're in the United States it is a really fantastic deal now another deal that I think is available to everybody is a huge 5e humble bundle for $25 you get 73 different 5th edition focused things for $25 now granted some of the 70 many of the 73 objects are things like a monster tracker or a character sheet or a location wizard or some vtt stuff so you're not really getting three source books worth of stuff but you're getting a lot of different things and what caught my eye is you get a lot of different cobalt press products it's not all of them it's not a ton of different cobalt press things but it's a, it's like a handful it's a good sampling you get tome of beast three you get a tome of heroes both of those alone are already worth more than the than the, the price of everything else and I'm, i have both and i i recommend them you get things like the Tome of Beast Lairs, Tomb of Tibriash, Warlock Grimoire, Warlock Lairs 41 through 60. See, it's interesting. It's like, it's sort of a sampling of different stuff. You don't, you're not getting like a huge pile of Cobalt Press stuff. You're sort of getting a sampling of different things. 12 Peculiar Towers, you know, Enigma Lost in the Maze, but then also a bunch of different products from other publishers. Now, important thing is, A, I, I was not asked to promote this. This is something that I, that I, that I saw myself or what I became aware of and thought was a really good deal should take a look and I, I am not backing it myself because I already have so many of these products already that I don't really feel like I need to get all of these so I am not put my own money where my mouth is with this stuff but I thought it was still worth showing off because it does have so many things City of Cats City of Cats is really good it is a city source book specifically for a Southland city I used that in my campaign and loved it so lots of different stuff you can get here again it's probably instead of 73 it's probably a good solid 20 you know, 20, 25, but still it's like a dollar. It's like a dollar a product. So you're getting a really good, you're getting a really good deal on this. So if you don't have a lot of these products, if you look at them and want to try them out, I think that this is a fantastic sampler. So a while back, I was talking about an idea called Mike's Little Candles. And Mike's Little Candles is a way for us to ask the question, is Watsy being a good steward of D&D and a good partner in the 5e role-playing game hobby? And I have these sort of little candles, things that I'm looking for to say, are good things happening? Are bad things happening? How, how do we keep a gauge on what's been going on? And there's a bunch of candles that are already lit, like the 5.1 SRD is in the Creative Commons. It's released in other, in other languages. They're continuing to put up physical products. They're continuing to release content on 
Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, and they offer non-exclusive licenses for third-party publishers in D&D Beyond, which they did with they did with Darrington Press. Some unlit ones were the release of the 3.5 SRD and the 2024 rules. So I have all of these different candles. Well, there's a kind of a new candle, a little thing that got lit, a small event that took place that on its own, you kind of go, yeah, okay. Is that really a big deal? But I would say it is a big deal. And what happened is that Roll20 now lets you build a D&D 5th edition character in their character mancer, in their character builder, outside of the virtual tabletop. So you can now go to Roll20 and you can go to Tools and Character Vault. And right here, you can create a character in 5th edition, bang, and it lets you basically build out a character using their character mancer. And you can use you can build that character and view it without having to launch the whole rest of the virtual tabletop. So why is this a big deal? Like they announced this in a newsletter and I was like, oh, and then a lot of, nobody even really mentioned it. I think it's a big deal because it shows that Wizards is letting Roll20 build a tool that is a pretty much a direct competitor of the D&D character builder in D&D Beyond. That now you have another alternative way to build a character using both Wizards of the Coast 5th edition material and 5th edition material from other publishers in a character builder on a tool without having to go to a virtual tabletop. Before, the only two places that had both Wizards of the Coast published D&D material and third-party published material are Fantasy Grounds and Roll20, but neither of those had a character builder external to the VTT. Well, now Roll20 does. So I think that that is a big deal. I went through the process and built a character. There's an important point. I I think it is definitely clunky and has a fair bit of room for improvement. For one, I can't see that you can load your sheet in a mobile platform at all. I hope I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, please email me or leave a comment and let me know, no, you can actually view your character that you built in the Character Mancer on a phone. I couldn't find a way to do it. I couldn't I couldn't even access the tool when I loaded Roll20 up on my phone. There wasn't even a way for me to get to the Character Builder thing. And looking at it, it does not look like a typical responsive web design sort of form. Also, I'm running on a Mac. Don't yell at me. And when I tried to export the sheet to PDF, all the font sizes were blown way up and I couldn't actually view the character sheet. That was really kind of a mess. But I think they could get there. So one of the questions that I saw coming up on the YouTubes was, is D&D a monopoly? And we brought, I brought, I thought, like, this is an interesting question. I think it's an interesting question. So we brought it to Discord. And my first answer was, no, D&D isn't a monopoly, but D&D Beyond is. And we had lots of good, healthy discussion uh, about whether or not D&D Beyond is a monopoly or not. And my argument was, it was the only place, it was the only character builder where you could use all of Wizards of the Coast material without having to load a VTT. And then like literally the next day, this came out. And I said, okay, guess what? D&D Beyond is no longer a monopoly. It does it no longer monopolizes character building for 5th edition, particularly 5th edition characters. They're using D&D non-OGL release material like your Tasha's and your Xanathar's and stuff. There's now another character builder. It's super super clunky and it needs a lot of work, but that's not a monopolistic practice. That's not because Wizards is standing in their way. That's because Roll20 needs to program a, a, a version of this that can work well on mobile, that can print well on all platforms, that has all of the cleanliness that D&D Beyond has. Because D&D Beyond is a fantastic tool, regardless of the fact that it is the primary way that you get access to digital versions of Wizards of the Coast published D&D material. It's also a really good platform. I know people argue with me, oh no, it's terrible. If you think it's terrible, then we don't have anything to talk about because then it's not a monopoly. You don't have to worry about it. If you hate it and you don't use it, 
you're not the you're not the problem right the problem is people who love it so much that it they become dependent upon it for their enjoyment of D&D and there are people who are dependent upon it for their enjoyment of D&D they really really want to use it rather than use anything else and i think that 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 weakens the hobby that weakens our our ability to enjoy D&D regardless of what any company decides they want to do with it but it also brought up another interesting question for me so this is fantastic the idea that there is another way to do this is fantastic but it brought up in my mind another question which is sort of like in an ideal circumstance what do we want when it comes to digital 5e material like what what would make the hobby as strong as possible and make it as robust as possible as resilient as possible as resilient as it is buying physical books right i talked about as long as you're able to buy physical books of role role playing game material that's incredibly robust those if there are thousands of these books out there in the world no company can like pull a thread and they all disappear right no like i always joke jeremy crawford's not coming to take your copy of volo's guide to monsters off your shelf if you own a copy you own a copy nobody can take it back from you likewise if you have pdfs of your products you can put those on a usb disk you can copy it to another usb disk you can take that one and you can put it in a safe in a safe deposit box you can rotate that disk every few years to make sure that the disk is staying up to date to make sure that all your backups are good and you can rotate through and you can keep those pdfs forever i don't know forever is a long time you could keep them for a long, long time. And no, again, no company can pull a thread and take them back from you. They can't break them. You own them. They're on your machine. You can use them. The only risk is you. Can you back them up? Will you go to the bank with a safety deposit box with stick in a USB disk? Or does your machine get wiped out and you lose everything? That's your problem. That's not Wizards problem. That's not the problem of a publisher. That's us making sure we're keeping care of our digital products the same way we keep care of our physical products. But as long as you have physical products, you you, you own those. What would the digital version of that be like and obviously pdfs is an example but pdfs are also locked in they're good eh, and even this i would argue they're good for human beings to read them they're not good for machines to read them and when i think about what a digital utopia looks like for this one of the things we need is tools that help us run the game and specifically probably the the most important tool that we need is something like a character builder something to help our players put together all of the complications of the mathematics of these games and have a nice tool that they can put on their phone or they can put in a browser or they put somewhere to help them run their game references that they can easily look up hyperlinks to spells and magic items and character powers and all this all the stuff that people love in a character builder but the, the current state is really kind of bizarre if you think about it. Let me let me tell you, let me share an, a, a, an idea. Imagine if you came to the Sly Flourish bookstore and you bought your copy of Forge of Foes, which by the way, you can now do, and you bought the digital copy of Forge of Foes and you get a PDF. And I said, that's great, except in order to read the PDF, you can only use the Sly Flourish branded PDF reader. And by the way, that's going to cost you $3 a month. And it, you can only read it in that. So you have to pay me $3 a month to have this tool to read the product that I sold you, right? And you go to Cobalt Press and you go buy Toma Heroes or, or uh, Toma Beasts, the new revised version of Toma Beast 1, which is a really excellent book. And Cobalt Press says, oh, you want Toma Beast 1? Great. Here's the PDF. But by the way, you also have to have the Cobalt Press branded PDF reader. That's going to cost you $3 a month. You'd be like, this sucks, right? This is terrible. I don't want this. 
that is the current state of digital materials for role-playing games outside of PDFs. Because if you think about it right now, if you want to get access to something like Tasha's Guide to Everything, you can only get it on D&D Beyond. You have to pay D&D Beyond both to license the book and to get access to the ability to read the book on one site. And then if you say, oh, but I actually want to use that in Roll20... Well, then you have to go buy it again on Roll20 and license it from them and and use them. And if you don't want to have like an ad-supported thing, you have to pay for their tool too. Oh, but now you decide, I don't really like either of those. I'd really rather use Fantasy Grounds. Well, now you got to buy the client to Fantasy Grounds and then buy the tool again. So you're buying it multiple times. Publishers are probably pretty happy with this. They don't mind the fact that you have to buy it multiple times. But it's not great for us, is it? Right? And again, I think it's kind of that idea of like, imagine if you had to have separate licensed paid for PDF readers in order to read the version of the PDF that you uh, just bought is an example of the way that's that, that's like now. My ideal would be when you go and you buy a digital version of a product from any publisher, not only do you get a human readable version of that product, like a PDF or maybe even EPUB or ideally both, Sly Flourish, we, we release both whenever we can. You can get EPUB versions of almost all of my books, but also a machine readable version whether it's XML or whether it's JSON, some kind of way to get the instruction set, the mechanics for that product you bought in a way that you could feed into another tool and it could use them. Like, and I know this is crazy talk. We're getting into Mike Shea crazy talk here, except I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you back down. We're gonna bring back down. We're gonna go from bottom up, top down. We're gonna connect the dots. And one of the, so, so imagine like you go to Cobalt Press and you buy your Toma Beast 3 and you get Toma Beast 3 uh, in PDF and maybe even an EPUB version that you can view on a phone that looks really good on a phone. But you also get a structured version of all of Toma Beast 3 that you can then feed into your favorite tool. Maybe you feed it into Lion's Den on your phone. Maybe you feed it directly into, into Roll20 so you have all the monsters in Roll20. Maybe you load them straight into Foundry so you have them right into Foundry. Maybe you're deciding to start with Foundry, but oh, you know what? At Foundry's, I'm having some troubles. With it. I'm going to move over to Roll20. No problem. I can just import all the data that I already bought that I already had from Foundry and I can import it into 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 roll 20 right wouldn't that be awesome so i'm kind of taking dnd beyond out of this because they don't even give you pdfs right at least all of the other publishers give you pdfs but there's this talk of like what publisher would ever do that who would ever do that one of them did right so first of all one question is why would the publishers spend all of that extra time and money and energy to put out a digital version of their product that's machine readable the answer is many of them already do because they have to convert their material from whatever they designed and developed into the print version, the PDF version, and make it into a digital version that they can put out on Roll20 or on Foundry or on Fantasy Grounds or on Shard. They have to go through that trouble already. And all I'm asking, and this is really what I'm asking, this is where when it comes to like, what do we do with this? What I'm really asking is if you are a publisher, particularly a larger publisher of fifth edition material, and you're already creating machine-readable versions of your, of your material, consider taking the stuff that you've already licensed as openly available through the OGL or through Creative Commons or whatever you use, consider putting that out there so that tool developers, software engineers, other people can take that and use it and convert it into other formats that we could use for other tools. Now, the argument is, why would they ever do that? That's just taking money away from them. I don't know that it really is because a lot of times the tools that they want to be able to import from, they're not supporting anyway. 
So this is just more ways for us to use data. Nobody is saying, oh yeah, no, I would only sell you my version for, for, for Lion's Den. I don't know any publisher that directly supports Lion's Den, but Lion's Den is a really cool tool, really good mobile application you can get on your iPhone that lets you open, that lets you view data. Wouldn't it be really great if you could take all of this stuff? Imagine if Tome of Heroes, for example, the Cobalt Press book Tome of Heroes. Imagine if the machine-readable version of all of the new powers, all of the new feats, all of the new spells, all the new subclass options were available in a way that you could import them into other tools and bring them in. Cobalt Press has this material because they have released Tome of Heroes on Roll20. I think they've released it on Fantasy Grounds and Foundry and Shard. They've already done the conversion work. I'm just saying, hey, make it, make it more openly available. I will point out one publisher who did exactly this, and that is N-World Publishing. So N-World Publishing publishes Level Up Advanced 5e. Level Up Advanced 5e is a whole different version of 5e. And when on, on his podcast, Morris talked about the fact that one of the things he wanted to do was release a bunch of stuff under a open gaming license that had not been released by Wizards of the Coast, which includes a whole bunch of different spells, but also a lot of feats and a lot of subclasses. Feats and subclasses are two areas that the... 5.1 SRD published by Wizards of the Coast doesn't cover. He ended up uh, commissioning a group to put out ver a licensable version of Level Up Advanced 5e that's like 1,400 pages. It's tons and tons and tons of material that covers monsters. It covers all character options, spells, magic items, monsters, feats, subclasses, and all the uh, basically all the material from their from their Game Master's Guide, which is a lot of material that Wizards did not publish themselves, including like the counter building rules, which aren't really in the 5.1 SRD but are available under this license. And it's released under three different licenses, Creative Commons, Orc, the, the whatever that Orc stands for, and the Open Gaming License. So you can choose which license you want to use to use this information. It's fantastic. I used it for my random generator that is available at Sly Flourish patrons. I brought a lot of Level Up Advanced 5e stuff licensed through their Creative Commons license. But also... N-World put out Level Up Advanced 5e as a module that you can bring into Foundry. Okay, that's great. Lots of people support Foundry with lots of different stuff. But here's what's really interesting. The entire Level Up Advanced 5e instruction set to support Foundry is also released openly on GitHub. So here is the official Level Up Advanced 5e Foundry VTT site. And it was funded by level up by nworld but the whole thing is released here including all of the data in a structured format so here are like backgrounds but they're in structured json now what's interesting about this is it was specifically designed for use inside foundry so all of the way that this is formatted is for foundry but because it's structured text smart software engineers can reverse engineer this stuff which again is openly available on github and licensed under these licenses and convert it into other systems all it takes is somebody going through the trouble to do it now i don't even know that morris really intended for all of this information to be out there in a structured data format and you could certainly see publishers who say things and i don't know that morris might be absolutely fine with it but you could certainly understand publishers who say oh yeah i release all my stuff under an open gaming license that didn't mean i wanted to see all the source code available on github and you're like well that the license allows for that right if you're going to make an open license for it you can do this so in this case i look at it and say just take that extra step you're already converting your data into a digital format that's machine legible and would I love to have a standard format that all the systems use so that you only had to export it into one format and that one format could feed into Roll20 directly and Fantasy Grounds and Foundry and Shard and Owlbear and Lion's Den and any other kind of tool that you're using? That would be outstanding. It's totally unrealistic that we're going to come up with a common format. 
Just having an any kind of structured format, though, means that software engineers can go and more easily convert it from one format to another. It is much easier to do that than it is to take it directly off of a PDF and go through the processing of formatting it for any given tool. So I think we can get there. And I think that there's a really good value in doing it. And the thing I would say to publishers is pr pretty much... Publishers really, in the, in the world of TTRPGs, not a lot of publishers are just in it for the money. There's really better ways. Go, go start business-to-business -business software engineering stuff instead. You're going to make a lot more money. We're into it because we want people to use our products. We're, as a, I can speak to myself as a publisher. I want people to use my work. I want people to take what I have, find what value they can, and use it however they can. And in some cases, that means I want it to eclipse me. I want that to be available regardless of what, I, what happens to me or what I do or where it goes or my heirs who turn out that they're living on Sly Flourish money and they're like, oh, we're going to pull this back and we're going to bind it. We want the work to outlast us. And if we want the work to outlast us in a digital world, we have to release it in a digital format that people can use. So that's, that's kind of my utopian thing. I got sort of driven by this, by that idea of seeing how Roll20, how, how the Roll20 now has a character builder in it. And I was like, well, imagine, imagine if I could get those character options in other tools and that I buy it once and I use it in lots of different places. Would be ideally a good situation to get in. Do I realistically think that's going to happen? No, but it's possible that if we talk to the publishers and we say, hey, we would really love it. You know, I know you put all of that information out on Shard. For example, Cobalt Press is taking Tales of the Valiant. They said that Shard is going to be an official VTT for Tales of the Valiant, which means they're going through the trouble of converting all the Tales of the Valiant material into a format that's compatible with Shard. Could you take the stuff that is already licensed under Orc, you can keep it licensed under Orc, but release that in an open format so that we can also use that material in other VTTs? That would be outstanding. We'll see. I don't know if we're going to get there or not, but I think that that is something that would really make this industry stronger in the digital space and would help ensure that we're not dependent upon digital platforms for hosting the sole version of an of the information that we're paying for and that if that site goes away we lose access to it i hope i hope that was an interesting conversation what can you do you could talk to your publishers and say hey it would be really cool if you released the same material that you put out under this vtt under the same open license that you're that you're putting out for the pdf that would be something to do if you're a publisher and you happen to be listening to it give it a try take take some of your books take one of your books that you converted and say hey we're also going to release a digital version of this in an open format that you could use directly in a virtual tabletop that'd be pretty neat let's talk about monuments what is a monument so in our complex DD games in our complex DD combat situations we sometimes like to dork with the environment instead of just messing around with monsters versus characters and you can dork with the environment in a bunch of different ways you can have elevation you can change the terrain you can put levels and stairs and difficult terrain to get around and other things but a very common thing to put in particularly in complex fights are ideas that i call monuments a monument is essentially some kind of structure like a statue or a obsidian obelisk or a pool or something some kind of 
fixed object that does something that affects the game around it. I have an article on Sly Flourish called Anatomy of an Environmental Effect Chernobog's Well, and it talked about a particular monument that did something in the combat of the game, that it had a story-based effect, there was a reason why it was there, it did things to affect the monsters, and it had ways for the characters to mess with the thing to disable it. And that's the kind of thing that I think about in a monument. This came back to mind because I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3, and some of the bigger battles in Baldur's Gate 3 has this idea in it. Objects that you have to interact with in order to change the situation in a battle. Sometimes you have to more mess with these objects. Other times there are things where things will be definitely easier if you mess with these objects than if you don't mess with the objects, or maybe you even get a benefit from them. One key to monuments, though, is that they are hard to improvise, that it's it's difficult to come up with ways to just build them on the fly. And I haven't found a good way. One of my failings as a, as a DM is that I will put an idea of a monument into an, a battle and then not realize how it's going to come into play. Uh, this just happened to me last week. We had a great big battle, big hole in the ground, big powerful monsters, level you know five level nine characters fighting two fallen celestials, CR-10 celestials, plus a CR-10 high priest, ghoul priest, all of whom could fly so that they couldn't be thrown down pits. And I had a statue of the king of ghouls, the, 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 the god of ghouls. Vardazane, the Ghoul King. And I wanted to use that statue to have some kind of effect on the game. The players assumed there would be, and I didn't come up with a good system. I basically said the statue was responsible for surrounding the high priest in a swarm of insects. That if you were going to go and screw with them, you were going to step into the swarm, you're going to get eaten up by bugs, and it's because of that stupid statue. And so the characters immediately started blasting with shatter, and I'm like, I don't know how many hit points it has. I'm like, yeah, that did a lot. Oh, you almost destroyed it. Yay, you destroyed it, right? And I kind of just improvised the hit points on the fly. And I realized, like, I could have done better. I could have had a better understanding of what this monument is and what it does and how we could use it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How can you do that? And we're going to do it with lazy principles. You you are probably, if you're going to drop these monuments in, it is worth your time to prepare the monument ahead of time so you know what it does, you know how it works. You can still have dials on it, so you can still change things during the game if it's not working exactly as you want. You can still screw with it in the game, but you should at least have a baseline, the same way we have a baseline for a monster stat block. And actually, that's exactly where we come in with the lazy part of it. If you're going to build a monument, an easy way to build a monument is to ask yourself what challenge rating is this monument and you can use the table from forge of foes so you can actually treat the monument as though it is a monster and you can use the stat block from forge of foes my book that i worked on with scott gray and teo sabadia that helps you quickly improvise monsters change monsters understand the tactics for monsters and we talk about this idea of using them as monuments inside the book itself but you can use the table the table is available as the from the sample chapters and you basically pick a challenge rating so you say if i'm going to have a big statue of vardazane the ghoul king that's going to be screwing with the environment what kind of stats should that statue have and i could say well probably not a cr10 that would be a pretty powerful statue maybe a cr5 or 6 so we could say oh, we'll make it a cr5 right and that means its ac is 15 it has 95 hit points if it's doing an attack bonus it's plus 7 if it's doing damage it's doing 35 it has number of attacks everything else so you have these stats and and for some monuments you might just say all i really need is the the, the armor class and the hit points because it's just how much does it take to destroy it now, you can also use that armor class as a DC if somebody wants to disable it. And you could essentially say something like, it's going to take so many attempts to disable this thing before it's destroyed. If you have like one monument, one central monument, three times is probably good. If you have a bunch of monuments, maybe you only have to do it once, right? Maybe that one good effect. 
you know, you're basically saying how many actions should it take a character to destroy this monument? Successful actions should it take for the characters to destroy this monument? But you can use the DC right off that table. You say it's a CR5 and you say that it has, you know, a DC of 15. DC 15 Arcana check to channel energy into it to try to draw the energy away from this monument that's doing that thing. Decide how many times it takes for that to succeed. You could even convert that over to damage and say, we'll, we'll call that 30 damage or we'll call it 35 damage. You could basically say, you know, if it has 95 hit points, then say we'll do 35 damage per success of damage to the object as you're channeling the energy in, which is like the equivalent if they blasted it with a lightning bolt or went over and spent all their actions to destroy it anyway, at ninth level anyway. So you could kind of build the stats on that. But what do the monuments do? What do you want these things to do? And how do you do that? So I came up with this thought of like, here are 20 possible things that a monument can do in a, in a battle. It can offer advantage to particular creatures on attacks or saving throws. So an example would be an unholy monument where all of the skeletons and undead in the area have advantage on their attacks and they get advantage on their saving throws. So all of the undead are powered up and you could easily describe this. So there's this unholy obelisk in the center of the room and all the skeletons are glowing with like violet light that's emanating off of it. And they're like, well, we got to screw with that thing or those guys are going to kick our ass. You could do something like that. Adds damage to particular creatures. Again, like their swords are doing an extra D6 or 2D6. Great way to take low level, low CR monsters and make them really powerful. You could you could do both of those. So you could have ninth level characters that go into a chamber that's filled with skeletons and there's a big unholy obelisk in there and the skeletons all rise up and they're all fueled with necrotic energy and they have advantage on their attacks and they do extra damage. They're way more lethal even though their hit points are not really that much lower and you can still destroy them really easily. Reduces damage. This is a good one for protecting your boss. If they are protected by an, an aura that's coming off of it, maybe they take, maybe they resist all damage until that thing is destroyed. So they have basically twice the hit points until you destroy that obelisk. And if the obelisk is easier to destroy than the, than the boss is, they'll want to aim for that first. So you're kind of steering their attention away. Unlocking particular abilities. All the, the characters, the creatures have some new ability that's coming from the obelisk. Access to particular spells they wouldn't otherwise have. Obscuring vision, hindering movement, preventing teleportation. Acting as a vessel for extra concentration. This is a cool one. If you have like a lich, what if the lich has these like spheres floating around their chamber and each sphere they have get, lets them concentrate on multiple spells. So they can do cloud kill and globe of invulnerability and something else. And by destroying those spheres, that's what gets them to lose concentration on those spells protective spell effects again it could be like a global vulnerability offering regeneration maybe they're healing as they're as that that thing as the obelisk works animating dead minions again the unholy one you're destroying the skeletons the next round 2d6 more skeletons rise up oh boy we got to destroy that thing or we're just gonna be swimming in skeletons granting resistance or immunity to specific damage types again because of the monument you have fire resist plus two bonus to attack certain creatures providing immunity so they say oh we have complete immunity to all necrotic damage or all force damage or all fire damage or whatever giving somebody the ability to fly summon and controlling a powerful creature offering legendary resistance and shrugging off other debilitating effects if you don't like legendary resistance on a monster you could apply it to objects in the room that, that give them legendary resistance maybe we destroy those and that gives us the ability to hit the monster with a big powerful spell effect and a damage pulse the idea that just fire it's waves of damage hit on like initiative zero a pulse of necrotic energy comes off of this thing and does a bunch of damage to creatures who don't do don't resist necrotic another really powerful way to use monuments is to 
attach spells to them. Spells are a really cool way to have a tiny bundle of custom mechanics that you can apply to magic items, you can apply to certain creatures, you can apply to monuments. Well, spells are not just spells. Spells are little bits of effects that you can apply all over the world for all different kinds of things. Really good lazy trick. Reskin spells into environmental effects you throw everywhere else. Here are 10 that are really effective if you throw them on a monument. Globe of Invulnerability. The, the boss is immune to spells below a certain level till you destroy the monument. Fire Shield. You can hit them and take a bunch of damage or you could go destroy that monument and then they don't have the Fire Shield anymore. Spirit Guardians. Big swirling thing around the boss or around the monument and every time you go in you take damage until you destroy it. Spiritual Weapons. Maybe multiple Spirit Weapons. There are four monuments, each of which have Spirit Weapons that are going off and attacking people but if you destroy the monument you destroy the Spirit Weapon. Darkness. Stone Skin. Protection from Good. Greater Invisibility. Silence and Anti-Magic Field. All different spells you can put on these monuments in order to give them some kind of power. Really, the reason we're using all of these things, the reason why monuments are powerful is because monuments are basically immune to any status effects. So they're not just a creature anymore. That the, destroying the monument is really a matter of doing damage to it more than anything else. One, my, my group likes to joke that monuments aren't, you know, that, that, that monst monuments are scarier than monsters because monsters we can talk to, we can convince them to do other things and we can hit them with spells like banish or uh, hold person or other things and kind of stop them. But monuments can't do anything to them and they're going to still kick your ass just as likely as the monster is. So it's kind of funny, but it also brings up a really important point. So we use monuments to shake up our battles. We use them to get the characters to move around the battlefield so they're not standing in one place. We use them to kind of split their targets so they're not just fire focusing all of their fire on the boss and destroying the boss in one round. They can't, they can't do it that way because they have to destroy some of these monuments or have to deal with some of the monuments or they're going to be way inefficient in what they're doing. There's a key to a monument, though, which is it's a thin line between a cool monument that really adds a dynamic, fun, new situation to the battle and one that's just a tedious pain in the ass. And it's really important to think about the monument and ask yourself, is this something that's really going to be fun for the characters to deal with? Or is this something that's just going to be a tedious pain in the ass? Because and even some of these things, the idea of monuments that hinder movement ones that uh, make creatures immune to certain damage effects. If you overuse these, they're like, oh God, another one of these stupid monuments I got to destroy before I go and I hit the boss. Can't I just go hit the boss? Do I really care? And it's a really thin line in figuring that out. And one question is, are you taking agency away when you put these monuments in place? So I actually think the offensive monuments are better than the defensive ones because taking damage is scary. Not being able to hit your your opponent is just boring, right? That if you say, oh, I just want to go up and do my, my multi-attack and action surge and hit him again, but I can't do it because that stupid monument is in the way. And as long as that monument is there, I can't hit the main boss. Then it can be kind of tedious. But when you have like a, a boss where it's like, if I get to him, I'm taking a bunch of damage on the way in. And then when I'm facing him, I'm getting beat up because all these other monsters have all these other abilities. Well, now it's more scary than it is than it is tedious. Bringing everything together, when we're looking at adding monuments to our game, there are a few things we can do, a few questions that we can ask that help us design these monuments that we throw into our big combat encounters. One important point is you don't want to overuse this. You really only want to drop it into big boss fights. You don't need to have monuments in every single battle. You, you use them too often, they definitely will become tedious. But they can work for kind of big set-piece battles where you want them to take a while, you want the characters to do things other than just run around and fight monsters. And that's, that's where they really shine, I think, particularly 
particularly in boss battles. So the first thing you do is you ask yourself, for this monument, what is it like in the world? How does it work? What is it doing? What does it look like? Are there, is there just one? Are there multiple monuments? But what, what is it about them that lets them do what they do? These kinds of questions will answer other things like how many successes or fails it takes to destroy. If there's a central pillar with three smaller pillars that are channeling energy into it, you know you have to destroy the three smaller ones to destroy the center one. Choose the challenge rating and st set statistics. Again, how difficult is this thing? You can use CR. A good gauge of like what challenge rating you should have for a monument is that it should be probably equal to the character's levels if there's only one, maybe half the character's levels if you have like two or four of these things. That, that's a rough gauge, but you're going to want to look at the challenge rating and decide how hard should these things be. The harder they are, the harder they are to destroy, the harder they are to ha attack. And if they happen to be doing damage and you're basing it on the damage per challenge rating table, that would be the, the bigger they are, the more damage they're doing. And then part of this is asking yourself, how many successful checks does it take to destroy one? If there's a number of monuments, maybe it only takes one. If there's only one monument, maybe it takes three. You could convert successes into damage if you want a way to sort of use hit points and success rolls together. You could say essentially that you do a third of the thing's damage, whatever hit points it has, a success equals roughly a little bit more than a third of the amount of, of hit points that it has. And then of course you want to give it an effect. What does this thing do? One good way is, is there a way to turn the effect against the monsters. So let's say you have an arcane pillar, an unstable arcane pillar in the center of your battle and it's firing off lightning bolts and the main boss is channeling energy into this pillar and using it to channel off lightning bolts that are hitting on like initiative zero every time they're going around and blasting everybody. And the characters figure out if we channel energy, we can actually fire lightning bolts back the other way. Well, now it's not a tedious monument. Now it's like a new thing that they can use. It's a new, it's a new thing they can, they can work with. Instead of just getting rid of it, they can actually channel it and use it for their own goods what if there's like a big unholy pool but you can make it a hallowed pool that gives radiant energy to all of the living creatures instead of necrotic energy to all the dead creatures so instead of just destroying it you flip the switch and now it's actually benefiting the characters that could be a great way to make monuments fun and interesting and not boring and tedious but you want to focus on what is that effect what does it do Again, look at spell effects. Spell effects are a great thing that you can always add to monsters. But then finally, think about it from the player's perspective. Is this going to be fun or is this going to be boring? Are you doing it just to protect the boss and make the boss harder to kill? Or is there a really cool story element to it? Or is there a way that the characters can do things with these other than just destroy them that they can turn around? Think about it from the perspective of a player. One thing you'll notice is that video games use these ideas all the time. Actually, what kind of inspired me to work on this was playing Baldur's Gate 3 and seeing all of the different big battles that occur in Baldur's Gate 3 that have these environmental effects, these monuments, these objects that are in the world that are doing things that you have to manipulate. And I was like, oh, of course, we use those in D&D all the time. It's a good thing to talk about. And in some of those battles, they're really cool, and some of those are kind of tedious. So those are, those are things to consider as well. So the next time you're building a big boss battle, think about the monuments that the boss could have in the room, what they could do, how they can make the battle more exciting, and, and how you can use these to really turn your battle into something that's unique, that has never been done before, and that your players are, are due to remember. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I post a monthly Q Q&A thread. Anybody can ask any TTRPG related question there. I answer all of the questions every Friday morning. Some of those questions I bring here to the show so we can talk about it a little bit more and share some of our experiences. 
Zen Hiker Joe says, do you ever make a list of dialogue options for important NPCs during prep? I first encountered dialogue options when I ran Prisoner 13, the free adventure from the D&D Beyond uh, published in the Keys from the Golden Vault. When you encounter Prisoner th 13, it has a list of things she might say. I ended up using all the options and felt it made the encounter easier and more dramatic, and I felt like I knew more about Prisoner 13's personality. I then started adding dialogue options for my NPCs during prep and had a lot of fun with it. I also felt like it gave me less to think about when I was role-playing those NPCs. I've watched a lot of your shows and did a quick search on the topic database and couldn't find anywhere where you had discussed the matter except for maybe improving NPC dialogue which was posted about four months ago. Listening to audiobooks is great, but what I'm talking about is actually making a list of ten things the NPCs might say. So I thought I'd ask since it has been so valuable to me and I'm wondering what you think. What you're talking about are secrets and clues. Now, you're talking about secrets and clues that are specifically tied to an NPC. I would argue an easier way to do it is to put those secrets and clues as a separate secrets and clues section of your game prep notes and then look at those and use those to drive what comes out of the mouths of your NPCs when the timing is right. Now, the key is what if they never talked to Prisoner 13? I think in this one, you, you kind of expected that you're absolutely going to talk to them. But the advantage of having your secrets, secrets and clues separate from your NPCs is if the player never talks to the NPCs, you can still use their dialogue, dialogue options with another NPC. So yes, absolutely, I do this. And I do it by putting those in secrets and clues. If I'm thinking, even if I'm thinking about an NPC, for example, in my Shadow Dark game, they're going to be talking to some pixies who are trying to kidnap them and steal their magic items. And I'm pretty sure they're going to learn a lot of stuff from those pixies. I didn't tie the dialogue options to the pixie. I just put those in secrets and clues because maybe they kill the pixies. Maybe the pixies fly away. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that those secrets might be things that the characters might want to learn. So yes, I think what you're, what, I think what you're doing is you're finding the value in having secrets and clues. You're finding them specifically valuable by tying to individual NPCs, which certainly can work. The question is, what if they don't happen to talk to that NPC and you take that block of whatever you had in your prep notes and you're not using it, but that information was vital. You can't easily pull it from one NPC and move it to another. Instead, separate it out. This is my thought, right? Separate that out, and that way you can apply it anywhere. But if you're focused on your secrets and clues, it's independent to the NPCs. You can still use it to drive your NPCs. I've had NPCs who spat out all 10 secrets and clues. They talk to them. They haven't talked to anybody in a while. They're kind of big gossips, and they want to just tell everything. And they do. And I remember the players like, yeah, boy, that guy told us everything, right? Or one of my favorites were like, they're fighting a commander, ghoul, a dark ghoul knight, and they say, you know, the, 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 the cleric pulls out his mace of disruption and waves it at him and says, are you sure you don't want to surrender? And the dark ghoul captain like looks back and he looks, and he goes, no, I think we're good. You know, ask me in six seconds. And the cleric says, it's not going to take six seconds and hits him and hit, crits and destroys him. And the next guy is like, yeah, let me tell you all about this place, right? Like I give up. Like, you know, we're good. What do you want to know? I'll tell you anything you want to know, right? And end up like introducing him to the main boss of the place. Oh yeah, no, there's all kinds of things. And I didn't know that the ghoul was going to die, right? Like I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know who the important NPCs are. I argue a lot of times we don't know who the important NPCs are going to be until we run the game. And then we see who they, see who they are. By separating our secrets and clues from the NPCs, it means any of the NPCs can be important. And those NPCs can spill out the stuff that's from secrets and clues. So I, I hope, I mean... There's probably more value in tying some secrets and clues to specific NPCs. A lot of times it's going to happen that way anyway, but I think that by separating those out, it gives us a little bit more freedom during the game to decide which NPCs are going to state which specific goal. So hope that helps then, Hiker Joe. Ben G says, I enjoy your video on running Ravenloft and Shadowdark. Are there other classic modules, AD&D or otherwise, that you think would run well in, in Shadowdark? Yes, I think that... Any of the classic adventure modules are probably going to run really well because the math 
of those adventures was very flat, as is Shadow Dark, Village of Hamlet, and Keep of the Borderlands, any of those old classic adventures. And there's a whole bunch of different kind of classic adventures that I think can work really well for Shadow Dark that I think fit the style of Shadow Dark and that Shadow Dark connects well with both mathematically and thematically and everything like that. Five adventures that I would recommend that I think fit really well. Village of Hamlet, Keep on the Borderlands, The Hidden Shrine of Tomoachan, The Ghost Tower Inverness, and Desert of Desolation. I think any of those would be really fun classic adventures that you could run alongside Shadow Dark. I think I think that those would that those would work really well. Skylar L says, I'm looking to start a one shot of Cyberpunk Red. The trick is that myself, the GM, and the players have never played this system or even similar systems. How do you start playing a TTRPG when no one, including the GM, have ever have never played before? What are some tips for using the starter kits? CPR has an easy mode. I'm hoping to avoid uh, falling into bad habits from not knowing the rules. So the, I, I, I have not played Cyberpunk Red. I have no, no, I don't know how that plays at all. So I can't speak specifically to that. But I can offer one tip that I think is really valuable, which is play the game together with your friends. That inst- even though you might be the game master who's kind of running the scenario and their character, their players that are running individual characters, if you get rid of the antagonism of GM versus player and remember that all of you are playing together and you're all figuring out the rules together, I think that can go better. It's okay if things are a little clunky. It's okay if you have to, you see a rule that goes one way and you have to go another way. I've been running lots of different systems that I don't know. I didn't know Shadow Dark RPG. I didn't know Blades in the Dark. I didn't know, I knew a little bit about Numenera, but it took some time to get back, back into Numenera. There's lots of times where I've run systems. And my key is that I ask the players to help me work through the rules with me, to look things up. Oh, I don't know. Could, could somebody look that up for me? Let's see how that plays out. And just remember, it's, it's kind of the same as playing any board game where you are all kind of working through the rules to see what's going on. Make sure the players have access to the rules like you do and work together to try to kind of tell the scenario and have all of you focusing down on the story that's occurring at the table, not so much this us versus them, me versus you, GM versus player sort of mentality that can kind of take over a lot of RPGs. If you're all working together, ask. You know, if you say like, well, does it make sense that this would happen? Sometimes, especially in an RPG that is sort of more open-ended where there's a lot of GM, sort of a lot of ideas from that the GM can kind of specifically define certain situations. You might talk with your players and say, well, what, what seems fair? What makes sense? What would work? I do this a lot in Shadow Dark, that instead of me just dictating things, I'll ask, would you prefer this or the other? The example is there isn't anything like death saving throws in Shadow Dark. There's, there's no idea about how, when a character actually dies if they're down and take damage. And there's lots of different opinions about it. And mine was like, what, what makes sense? And I figured that what makes sense to me is if a character is directly trying to kill you, they're probably going to be able to do it. Otherwise, they're going to remove the number of rounds that you have to be healed if you take damage. So, and then I ask questions like, do you want me to roll it on my own or do you want to roll it? Like, do you want to know how many rounds you have or do you want me to roll it and that's how many rounds you have and you don't know? And, you know, we, we, we all work together to kind of determine these rules. So my number one rule, my number rule, my number one piece of advice that I would offer for this is to spend the time with your players to recognize that you're all playing it together. You're all learning the rules together you're all figuring things out together it's okay for it to be kind of clunky let it be a little clunky figure things out and just enjoy spending time with your friends figuring out this new fun game friends i want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games if you like this show and you want to see more stuff like this more stuff from me the best way to do so is to sign up for the sly flourish newsletter it is absolutely free to sign up you get a free adventure generator pdf 
when you sign up and you get a weekly RPG related email that includes all links to all of the other works that I do. The videos I put out, the podcasts, everything that I put out are all linked in, in that newsletter. You can also pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, including the Lazy DM's workbook, Lazy DM's companion, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and the recently released Forge of Foes are all available on the bookstore along with Fantastic Locations, Fantastic Lairs, Fantastic Adventures, and Ruins of the Grendel Root. Those are all available on the store as well. And you can sign up for the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server to talk with other GMs about how to in- enjoy this hobby that we're enjoying. Whole bunch of tools, adventures, tips and tricks for running your own games and the city of arches Sourcebook. you get access to all of that through the sly flourish patreon it's a really really good deal you should definitely check it out thank you all so much have a great day get out there and play a role-playing game